This morning's reading is from Isaiah chapter 43, verses 16 to 25. This is what the Lord says. He who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out the chariots and horses, the army and reinforcements together, and they lay there, never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wick. Forget the former things, do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up, do, not, do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. The wild animals honour me, the jackals and the owls, because I provide water in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland to give drink to my people, my chosen the people I formed for myself, that they may proclaim my praise. Yet you have not called on me, Jacob. You have not wearied yourselves for me, Israel. You have not brought me sheep for burnt offerings, nor honoured me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with grain offerings, nor wearied you with demands for incense, you have not bought any fragrant calamus for me or lavished on me the fat of your sacrifices. But you have burdened me with your sins and wearied me with your offences. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. And the second passage we're reading this morning is from Luke chapter 5 and it's from uh, verses 17 to 26. One day Jesus was teaching and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralysed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. Thank you, Peter. Well, that's my prayer is that you can go home today and say, we have seen remarkable things today. I doubt many of those who turned up to hear Jesus' lecture 
on the kingdom that day knew they would go home watching a paralyzed man walk again. But the good news this morning is that the astounding fact in this passage is not that a paralyzed man walked again. It's that sins can be forgiven. As we come to Luke's gospel, chapter 5, verses 17 to 26, we're in the midst of a series that unpacks the way of salvation. Jesus' movement in the book of Acts, his, his followers are called followers of the way. Uh, he came to bring a way and a way to be saved. And we're trying to understand what is this way of salvation. And today's message is a really uh, powerful passage because it shows the grace of God in action. And it raises the question, how do you know you've experienced grace? How do you know you've experienced grace? I don't know about you, but as, as we reflect on these things, it's, it's sometimes easy to think, oh, well, grace is something I experience. It, it means I've, I've encountered something that makes me feel good. I feel happy. I feel good. I, I don't feel pressure. I, 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 don't feel, I don't feel burdened. And, and we think, okay, this is what it means to, to experience grace. And so sometimes when we're trying to, to ask ourselves whether or not God is being gracious to us, we go into our feelings and say, how do I feel? Do I feel happy? Do I feel unburdened? Do I feel at ease or at rest? But this passage is going to show us that experiencing grace is less like a feeling that may come or go. It's actually closer to the reaction of the crowd. Luke suggests to us by the reaction of the people who've had this encounter with Jesus, who've watched his grace in action, their, their response, the way they know they've experienced grace is they go home saying, we have seen remarkable things. They are filled with awe and amazement. Can I suggest to you, that's how you know you've encountered grace. You encounter God in such a way where you go, you go home marveling bewildered, wondering at the strangeness of the goodness of God. The key teaching that this passage is bringing for us is that Jesus releases us from captivity. We see in this text that captivity can take a physical form, but primarily captivity is a spiritual reality for all of us. We are bound to sin. And so salvation, if we're following this way of salvation, it means being released from sin and its effects. You say, well, this is a passage about a healing. How, uh, what do you mean this is, this is about sin? Well, the Bible says that all disorder in creation is actually a result of sin. All of, all of the chaos, the, the natural world experiences is attributable to the fall of God's image bearers the man and the woman in the garden. And it is this separation from God that actually brings about the curse of death, which to us doesn't feel like a curse, it really just feels a part of life. But when God created men and women, he did not make them to die. The death and the decay that they experience is a result of their estrangement from God, their, their alienation from God, which has its cause back in sin. Because a holy God, who is perfect and righteous, cannot abide 
sinful rebellion. Which brings us to this paradox of grace. Grace is remarkable. As, as they go home uh, in verse 26 of this, of, this, of this chapter, Luke chapter 5, they go home, it says, they're filled with awe and said, we've seen remarkable things that day. The word used for remarkable is where we get our word paradox. Now, you might not be used to talking about a paradox. You might say, oh, that sounds like a really highfalutin word. Uh, paradox is really two things that seem incongruous, two things that, that seem like they don't fit together, that, that, that they wouldn't work, two realities that can't seem to, to exist or, or inhabit the same universe, and yet they do. And so the people, as they go home and they're marveling, they're marveling at this, at this paradox, this, they're, they're bewildered at, at this reality that they've presented with it. They thought, I didn't, think, I didn't think this could be true. It's contrary to all expectation. Can I tell you that's what the grace of God is like? It's contrary to all your expectation. This is why our efforts to figure out a way to get to God always fall short. <laughs> because when we come from the position of our own reality, our own effort, we fall short. As we uh, move into this passage, Luke 5, 17 to 26 is going to record the gracious authority of Jesus on display, and, and this paradox comes alive in three, what I'm calling three strange acts that Jesus does, which are contrary to expectation. Jesus walks in to three paradoxes and leaves them there for them, that they might know and understand who he is that they might understand what the grace of God is. So I wanna encourage you this morning, if, if you've always felt like, I can't get my head around Christianity, what? I know people seem to be passionate about it, I know people like to talk about Jesus, but I don't really seem to understand or comprehend, like, what's the go? <laughs> what, 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 what's the deal with this Christian thing? It's never really sort of made sense to you. I really wanna encourage you to understand that this is not something that naturally makes sense. But through the course of this passage today, we're gonna to hit three things that are just foundational to being a Christian. We're gonna hit faith, we're gonna hit forgiveness, and we're gonna hit authority. There's a Christian understanding of faith and forgiveness and authority that, that is going to be the means by which grace becomes real to us. All right, these three things that Jesus, uh, these acts that he does, the first is that he sees faith, the second is that he forgives sins, and the third is that he proves he is God. Jesus sees faith, he forgives sins, and he proves that he is God. Uh, we'll go ahead and leave this on the screen. If you need to keep taking notes, don't feel guilty while I pray. <laughs> I've been told some people say, uh, I wanna keep writing, but he goes to prayer. Uh, you can keep writing if you want, but let, I'm gonna pray right now and ask that God uh, bless our time. Father, would you encourage us through the work of your spirit. Lord, we recognize that we've been invited into this great salvation. And I pray this morning that those who have found it strange might see it as familiar. I pray they would hear your call and hear your wooing. God, would you bless us? May we taste that grace for ourselves in your name. Amen. So the first, the first uh, 
controversial, paradoxical uh, act that Jesus does is he sees faith. Verses 17 to 19, he sees faith. Uh, and here what, what you need to understand is that, that for God, trust trumps convention. For God, hit the, your, your faith is far more important than the customs and the traditions around you. All right. That's not to say that God doesn't have righteousness. He doesn't have. He doesn't have. Uh, he doesn't command obedience in certain things. But in this instance, you're going to see that the thing that gets Jesus' attention is faith, and he could be. He couldn't be any less concerned about how it looks to the outside. Follow with me as Luke set this, sets this up. Verse 17, one day Jesus was teaching and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. Now the Pharisees were a group of only about 6,000, there's only about 6,000 Pharisees in the area at this time. And Pharisees often, uh, no one wants to be called a Pharisee today, right? It's a, it's a term that has uh, a bad connotation. If somebody says you're being a Pharisee and you're a Christian, you're sort of supposed to be like, oh goodness, I better stop. Uh, but Pharisees were actually quite influential in that day, and the Pharisees were trying to, to move this understanding of purity, of, of acting rightly before God, out of simply the, the, the religious context and into the everyday life. And so they had a real zeal for God. They looked at the history of God's people, Israel, and they saw that it was their unfaithfulness to God that led them to be oppressed by all the nations around them. And so as they returned to the promised land, there, there was a group of people who, like Ezra, were, were zealous to, to make sure that they were doing everything that they, wanted, that they thought God wanted to do. And in fact, they took this so seriously that, that their approach was, if God says these are the boundaries and this is the box, well, we're going to construct a fence even wider than that just to make sure nobody crosses into the box that they're not supposed to go in. And so a lot of their zeal and a lot of their teaching uh, was very influential. They were, they were respected for such a small number of people, only 6,000 uh, among them uh, were Pharisees. They were quite influential. They had the ear of the people. Pharisees in Luke's gospel are, are referred to a little bit differently in Jesus' gospel. And we know in some Pharisees actually would come to trust in Christ. But the Pharisees were not the only ones who were there that day. There were these teachers of the law, which is the NIV's way of, of, of basically saying these are, uh, these are ecclesial lawyers, if you will. Uh, we don't really think in these ways in the Baptist churches. We love to just be really grassroots and, you know, sort of laissez-faire and, you know, hey, you make your way and, and that's fine. But, but in some other denominations, this, this, this is something that's very real, right? You have the person who's the expert in the law who's able to say, okay, inbounds, out of bounds. Well, here in this teaching, these Pharisees and these experts in the law, these church lawyers, if you will, have shown up to hear Jesus speaking. And, and if we remember from last week, this is actually quite reasonable because last week Jesus was happy to step into the role of a priest and pronounce a leper clean and say, okay, you're, you're clean. Just go offer the sacrifices now. And so here is Jesus' teaching. He's attracted a crowd and Luke is setting the scene. And he he, he baits us a little bit at the end of the verse because after describing that they'd come from every village in Galilee and from Judea and from Jerusalem, right, probably a, a, a coalition, if you will, has arrived, Luke then baits the hook by saying, and the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Interesting. We're anticipating a healing, aren't we? 
The power of the Lord was with Jesus. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. Verse 19, when they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. Here you have a picture. Uh, it's, a, it's an account that's given in the other gospels, Matthew and Mark as well. And we know from Mark's account that there was four men who were carrying a, a paralyzed man. He, he didn't have the ability to use his limbs. He couldn't walk, and he was confined to this bed. And this man and his friends, uh, they, they decided that if they could just get in front of Jesus, something good was going to happen. And so they come and they show up, and you can imagine it, it's a little more cumbersome to try to carry somebody on a mat than it is to just walk or run if you hear about the gathering. So they're probably a little bit late to get there, and they show up, and because of the crowd, it's not that the crowd doesn't, that doesn't want them to be there, it's that everyone else is already there. And so, and so they're late, and they're, they're not able to actually get in. And so they decide to go up on the roof. Now, in homes in those days, it, was not a, it wasn't a pitched roof. It was a flat roof. Uh, they would sometimes use sort of mud and thatch uh, to, to kind of create that roof. Uh, by the time of Luke's writing, they were starting to use tiles in some, in some Greek homes. Uh, and we know that Greek influence on the culture in this time was large. Uh, but Jesus looks at all of this, verse 20, and he makes a comment. He says, Luke records, when Jesus saw their faith. So you've got to imagine this scene. Here's Jesus teaching in the midst of this great, co this great group of representative authorities of religious matters. Who knows what he was saying? We're not told what Jesus was saying. And in the midst of all of this, there's this commotion and there's this disturbance. And right in the middle of the room, this man is getting lowered through the roof on a mat. It's crazy. Now, I've been in a plenty of lectures in my day. And let me tell you, I've had professors where if you so much as coughed or sneezed at the wrong time, you got, you got a look. And so here is this man and his friends literally altering the building so they can get him at the feet of Christ. And Jesus doesn't see somebody being rude. He doesn't see somebody interrupting. He sees faith. Jesus looks at this picture and he sees faith. And you say, how, did, how, how could he see that? And this is the first paradox. They didn't lower the man down and say, well, here's my, here's my creedal confession. Jesus, we believe that you are the Son of God. We believe that you are the Word incarnate, the Word made flesh, dwelt among us, long promised through the prophets. They, they didn't go ahead and recite and give a biblical theology of all this. They didn't. They just opened the roof and here comes the man. Jesus doesn't see an interruption. He sees faith. It's a paradox. God has the ability to see through the external and to see right to the heart to discern whether people are trusting him. In a few weeks' time, we're going to get a great portrait of faith in the centurion. And Jesus is so astounded at this man's faith, 
he just stops in his tracks and he just tells everybody, hey, there's no, none of you Jews are like this. <laughs> if you want to get Jesus' attention, trust him. Believe him. Jesus looks at this and he sees faith. Now, last week we talked about faith, and we've been talking over the last few weeks about how faith is something that transformed people bring about. There's these habits of faith. Last week we saw this habit of faith of embracing the gospel, and I want to suggest to you that's what these men were doing, this man and his friends. You say, how do you, how do you see that? Well, word must have gotten around that Jesus was a powerful healer, that he was willing to cleanse a leper, and, and this was a reality that they grabbed onto. We're not even told that they had an interaction with Jesus himself before this. It's definitely not pictured this way. But in hearing the message, they, they, they grabbed this message with hope. They, they said, we believe, we believe this, and if we can just get this man in front of Christ, something is going to be different. Something will change. And so they move from, from hearing and embracing this good news, this grace, into putting it into practice. And this is the habit of faith that, that is, we're really trying to draw out, and we're really hot, this text really highlights. You see, when you come to Christ and you understand that you're forgiven and you're made clean like that leper was, you're, you're essentially given a new identity. As Paul would say, the old is gone, the new has come. So practicing the gospel, putting it into action, it doesn't, it doesn't mean going to practice like you're going to perform, you know, your, your seven cello recital. And, and I just, I just got to get this right, you know. I, I just got to practice, 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 practice to get this right. We don't practice the gospel because we're going to have a test on it later. Practicing the gospel in this sense is more... Uh, as Joanna was sharing with me yesterday, it's more along the lines of, of training. Much like you would grow a muscle. It's repeated behavior that conditions us and makes us stronger. So these men went back to their lives. They had jobs. They had, you know, they had the law of God. They, they had this knowledge of Yahweh in, in a way to worship him. Just like you would go back to your same workplace. You would go back to your family of origin. You would go back to your life after encountering, encountering, encountering Jesus. But now that you've embraced the gospel, it actually changes the way you go about it. And so you have choice so we practice the gospel not out of a performance, but we practice the gospel because it's now who I am. I'm somebody who's been cleansed. I'm somebody who's been forgiven. It's my way of being. It's my way of doing. And so for someone who believes that Jesus is God's authority and has power to heal, for these men... Digging a hole in the roof wasn't making a scene, and it wasn't being some absurd interruption. It was actually the most logical thing. It was the most logical thing they could come up with. Well, if we can't get to Jesus by going through the front door, well, we'll just use the stairs that are aside on the side of the building, go up to the roof, and we'll get him there that way. 
They had so internalized the reality of Christ and his grace that it began to overflow into their actions. And so as you and I think about our faith and putting it into practice, I encourage you, look at these men in this example because that's who Jesus sees. It's not the faith of the paralytic only. It says he saw their faith. Plural. And in seeing their faith, Jesus is moved to respond. When you embrace the identity that God has given you in Christ, that you're forgiven, that you're clean, and that you're made whole, it's then a decision, will I act out of that identity? We said last week how absurd it would have been for the leper to just go back and live with his leper friends because that's all he'd known before. And so as a Christian, now that you've been cleansed and you've been forgiven and you know the grace of God, why not go live as one who's received grace? Put it into practice. And you have to admire these men with their singular focus that they, they thought, there's no obstacle big enough. I just gotta get this, I just gotta get my friend at the feet of Jesus and he, Jesus is gonna do something. Can I encourage you to think about your friends in that way? You don't need to, you, you can't heal them. Please stop trying to fix them. Don't make them your hobby or your project. Just try to work out. How, how can I represent Jesus so faithfully to them that it's as if when they, when they see me, they're in front of Christ? But Jesus sees faith, and this is, the, this is the first paradox. The second one is his response. <clears throat> he forgives sins. And here Jesus makes a very strange comment. You're reading this text, and Jesus' words hit you like a rabbit punch. They come out of nowhere, right? Luke's been baiting you the whole time. This paralyzed man, they can't get him in. They just got to lay him down at the feet of Christ. We just got to dig a hole in the roof, and there he is. And you're thinking, great, Jesus sees their faith, and now he's going to heal them. You're like, I'm get, catching on to you, Jesus. This is what you do. And so you read verse 20, and you say, and so Jesus healed the parent. Nope. He sees their faith, and then he says, man, Friend, your sins are forgiven you. <laughs> what? Who in their right mind thought he was going to say that? So what's going on? I mean, is Jesus just really dull and dense? Is he trying to be opaque for the sake of being mysterious, you know, spiritual guru here? Well, thankfully, we know he, he actually wants to heal him as well. But as many have seen in this text, Jesus actually sees the real captivity behind his physical captivity. Now, there's a whole host of questions about is the man paralyzed because of a sin that he did and is this what Jesus is trying to say? Can I tell you, there's passages in John's gospel, there's passages in the book of Job that really warn us against condemning somebody and saying their affliction is a result of, of their sin. 
On the other hand, in Jesus healing another paralyzed man, after he healed him, he told him, good, now go, don't sin anymore or else it's going to get worse. <laughs> but it's really, these matters are, 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 are really left out of this account. What Jesus is doing here is he's releasing the man. He says, friend, your sins are forgiven. Can we just stop and appreciate that he says, friend, friend. Wow. Next week, we're going to see that Jesus says, I came to call sinners, not the righteous. He begins to catch flack because he is a friend of sinners. And, and here it starts. He says, friend, your sins are forgiven you. Now, this is an area of disconnect with our culture because we don't like categories of sin. Sin implies a whole host of assumptions that we're in the process of rejecting as a culture. Number one, sin implies, a category of sin, to say you are a sinner implies that there is an objective morality, that there is a right and there is a wrong, and it's not something that is subjectively constructed by different societies at different times and places. So to say someone is a sinner is to say that there is a standard of holiness out there, and it is an objective standard, whether nobody meets it or everybody meets it, this is the standard, it cannot change, there is a right, there is a wrong. That's assumed in this statement. The second assumption in this statement that we're trying to get rid of is that we are accountable for whether we meet the standard or not. Jesus says to the man, your sins are forgiven. The word forgiven is released, you, you are released from your sins. The implication is that a failure to meet this standard, a failure to, to conduct yourself in a way that hits God's expectation of holiness, that you're then accountable for that. Just like you might be accountable for not paying your rent on time or, if, or not making a car payment. And you get, start getting calls and houses saying, you owe us this money. If you don't give us this money, we're going to come and we're going to take possession of your other goods and belongings. So the, the, there's a sense, not only is there a standard, but, but secondly, we are accountable, and if we don't meet the standard, that, that we are then under constraint or obligation. And thirdly, and finally, the assumption we're trying to get rid of that this text brings into it, it's in Jesus' statement, your sins are forgiven, is that sins are attached to individuals. He says, your sins are forgiven you. We've got to be careful of this in the church because it's really easy to talk about sin as this oppressive force or sin as, as something that's... That's this evil. <clears throat> you can even describe sin as, as, as this kind of force within you and you detach yourself so much from it that we forget that the sins are ours. But Jesus says to the man, friend, your sins are forgiven you. You are released from these. Now some are really concerned in the church because they think, <clears throat> you know, I understand that if I confess my sin to Christ that, 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 that he might forgive me once, but, but what if I sin again? As if when you hear the gospel, you hear the good news of Jesus, he died for the sins up to the point where you heard him, you heard the offer of grace, but, but now that you know, 
Well, now you gotta, you got to work to keep that grace. And I love what John Calvin said about this, and pardon the 16th century language. <clears throat> it's transla translated from French. If we are admitted and engrafted into the body of the church, the forgiveness of sins has been bestowed and is daily bestowed on us in divine liberality, meaning freely, God freely bestowing forgiveness and grace through the intervention of Christ's merits, that's his work on the cross, and the sanctification of the Spirit. He's saying you are brought into the church, the body of the redeemed, because your sins are forgiven, and in belonging to Christ's church, that forgiveness is not just given to you once, it's given to you over and over and over and over and over again. God is graciously giving it to you. So Jesus looks at this man who is utterly helpless in his physical life, and the thing he decides most important is to release him from his spiritual condition. Think about that. The next time you and I get caught up in our physical circumstances and, 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 and the way life is going and what's happening here and what's happening there, Jesus is, is quite happy in responding to the faith of somebody to say, I'm going to release you from your spiritual affliction. And what's going on here is Jesus sees in the man's physical condition a mirror of his spiritual condition. This is why Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 2 that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead people can't do anything. You're bound. You're trapped. Sin is a snare. It is constraining you in so many ways. The thought of trying to free yourself from sin is like binding yourself up in chains with a thousand different padlocks with combinations and codes given by thousands of different people that are written down and then incinerated and after thousands of years forgotten and then being dropped into the bottom of Mariana's Trench with moments before you die. It is, a, it is an impossible situation to free yourself from sin. And here Jesus releases him. Think about it. Every wayward thought, every act that was selfish or wrong, every, every defiance of God, every failure to live up to what you were meant to be, all of that, Jesus says, he doesn't say, oh, don't worry, you weren't accountable for that anyway. He doesn't say, oh, look, that's just what sin does. That's just sin in the world. It's not really on you. No, Jesus walks into that and he says, your sins are forgiven you. Have you been forgiven of your sins? Have you? It's kind of important to know the answer to that question. If Christ hasn't released you from your sins, if you haven't come to him and confessed and, and, and sought that release, you're, you're stuck and you, you're going to be flailing about. 
Your soul is not alive. The last thing that Jesus does, which is contrary to expectation, is he just flat out proves that he's God. Uh, And again, like, how can Jesus see faith? Why would Jesus pronounce forgiveness when the man is just crippled right there in front of him? And you're telling me God is is in the body of a 30-year-old Jew from Nazareth? Really? (laughs) Okay, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, their study has actually led them into something. They get what's going on. They begin thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Now, to speak blasphemy is not just to speak against God, but it's to, it's to sin through your mouth and to sin through what you say. And you can sin against God in what you say by not only speaking words against him, but you can sin against God by, by claiming prerogatives that only he can claim. And that's what's going on here. And they say it in their second question, who can forgive sins but God alone? The implication here is that in any sin, even if you steal your coworker's stapler, the first person that you've sinned against is God. Jesus doesn't tell the paralyzed man, I forgive you, as if the paralyzed man had done him wrong. You see, that would be one thing to seek forgiveness off an individual. And they say, yes, I forgive you. I release you from this. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. He steps behind the holy of holies. He grabs the mic at the podium. He sits in the big chair and says, your sins are forgiven. And they say, how can he say this? Jesus knows what they're thinking. And he challenges them. He says, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? Now, many people have done a deep dive on that question. What's easier to say? Is it easier to forgive sins, or is it easier to heal the paralytic? And we go back and forth. Which is it? Can I suggest to you, as one commentator said, the point here is not to try to rank what's easy and what's hard. That's not the point. Jesus is setting them up. He's setting them up for a demonstration by which he's going to make an equation. He's going to show them, if I can heal, you should believe me that I can forgive sins. And that's what he does in 24. I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Now, he uses this phrase, Son of Man. Interesting phrase. There was a lot of talk about the Messiah. There was a lot of talk about what the, 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 the king of you know, David's offspring would do. A term that they didn't use very much was son of man. It's in scripture, absolutely, but it wasn't a common term. And so Jesus, in referring to himself as a son of man, uses the third person. He's, you can almost see he's looking for a title that's not going to get their expectations out of order, but yet is in line with the biblical witness. And so here he is, son of man. If you read the book of Daniel, the son of man, one like a son of man approaches the throne of God and receives all authority. So here he says, I want you to know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. They said, who can forgive sins but God alone? 
Jesus doesn't correct their thinking. He doesn't say, look, your theology's bad, guys. <laughs> no, anybody can forgive sins. God can, we can, you can, I can. All I got to do is walk over and say your sins are forgiven. No, 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 you're thinking about it wrong. He doesn't correct their theology. It's because their theology is right. They're right. Only God can forgive sins. He doesn't correct the theology. He comes back to them and he says, but so that you know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he looks at the paralytic, get up, take your mat, and go. If only God can forgive sins, and I just forgave this man his sins, who am I? God is on earth. Remarkable. And they will call his name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. We've seen his glory. Glory is the one of the only begotten Son. Jesus is saying, hey guys. I'm it. I'm him. And I'm here. And I'm on this earth. And I have authority to release people from their sin. And he looks at the man and he says, rise, get up, go. Yes, he's healing the man, but he's making a statement and he's showing them, I have this power to forgive sin. And in this, in this beautiful image, the, the paralytic who has no capacity to get himself grace. He can't even get out of bed and walk to Jesus. He has to be brought to Jesus. Here is the man confined to his bed, The cot that bore him into the presence of Jesus, he will now stand and take with him as he walks out of there. This is grace in action. Immediately he stood up in front of them and took what he'd been lying on and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God, and they were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things. Brothers and sisters, this is what it looks like to experience grace. Grace isn't that warm, fuzzy feeling you get when you feel like you're on top of it all. That's not grace. Grace isn't, is, isn't that sense that, you know, well, I, I guess I'm pretty good. I'm not as bad as the next person. That's not grace you're feeling. It's pride. You will know you've encountered grace. When, when, almost defying your own exp, explanation, all you can do is you can say, God, you're amazing. I praise you. God has met me. We've seen remarkable things today. When Jesus stood in the synagogue at Capernaum, he quoted Isaiah 61 and a little bit of Isaiah 58, and he said, my ministry, <laughs> the Spirit of the Lord is on me to proclaim release, to release the captives. Can I tell you, that's what we're doing today. Jesus is still releasing captives. That's what the church is called to do. 
Christ has given us the master key. And he said, I forged this key, and I'm the only one who could hold this key, the key to life and the key to death, the key to forgiveness. And he gives it to the church, and he says, I want you to go around, and I want you to tell them that all they need to do is accept by faith by faith, the grace that I'm given, and that will unlock them from their chains and they will be forgiven and they will be released and they will go forth in new life. We talked about how the men who brought the paralyzed man to Jesus, they were putting grace into action. They, they, they had embraced this reality that, that, that they had a way to continue the work of Christ, to continue this mission. But here, this man is now put in a position very tangibly right in that moment to to put the grace of God into practice. He's been laying on his mat for who knows how long, probably a very, very, very long time. And Jesus just told him to do something he'd never done. Stand up. And he has to ask himself, am I someone who's been healed? Am I someone who's been forgiven? Or am I still that crippled man? And the first time he stood up, I imagine he was feeling really, really shaky and really, really wobbly and and thinking, I'm not really sure I remember how to walk if I ever knew how to walk. Same with you. You you encounter the grace of Christ that puts you in a situation and you think, if I'm going to put this grace into practice, it might might cause me to do things that I've never done before. You say, I don't have, I don't know what it's like to walk in the Spirit. It's okay. You can. When we embrace our identity as cleansed and forgiven sinners, we are then put in a position to act this out. And the only way that man was going to learn how to walk was by getting up. And I imagine the first time he was shaky, and the second time he was a little less, and the third and fourth time, and by the end, he was a completely new man. Let's put the gospel into practice. As the band comes forward and we draw our service to, to a close, I hope you see that the grace of God is something that is given to you and it comes to you outside of yourself. It's not something that you can earn or merit or, or even deserve. But this is the goodness of Jesus. <laughs> that he loves you, that he's willing to forgive you. And not because forgiveness didn't cost anything. No, it cost him everything. He, He left his father's glory to die on a cross for you so that you would be forgiven. And now we're putting the question of how will I walk with this Jesus? Let's pray. Father, would you lift our hearts and minds, sanctify us according to your truth, that we would walk boldly with you. Lord, I realize that for many this is new, Lord, I pray that those who are not sure that they've been forgiven, that they would confess, that they would repent, that they would do whatever it takes to put themselves at your feet in a position of desperation and graciously receive whatever comes from your hand. 
God, we know you are good. May we not forget that we've been forgiven. Help us to be bold. In Jesus' name, amen.